and welcome to Dot to Dot, the podcast that connects the dots on how to be you with me, Fiona Merton, psychologist and author. Today, I'm really, really happy to actually meet properly, although we're not in the flesh, Dr. Anna Colton, who is a clinical psychologist, but you work in what I would call the positive space rather than the maybe the more traumatic end of the spectrum I work in both actually oh do you I do work in both so I do a lot of um eating disorders particularly anorexia uh and you cannot be outside of trauma that's one of the things that I have a teenage daughter and it's one of the things that scares me most is seeing friends with teenage daughters who've had eating disorders yeah absolutely couldn't agree with you more so I, I do, I do do that space, but I also do, um, and, and within that space, you know, lots of anxiety, a lot of distress, um, and a lot of adolescent work. And then I also work um, on a number of the West End stage shows, um, which is more the kind of performance space and the more positive space, I think, less, less unwell focused, more healthy, you know, um, healthy functioning. How do we get the best performance? How do we look after elite talent? Um, that space which and then I, another weird one in performance which is kind of you know actually barristers I do a lot with barristers and that is very similar and also different so yeah a few weird niches but both spaces interesting from my personal perspective uh, I mean I, I've always said that we're on a continuum I think we all know we're on a continuum from mental ill health through to high mm. performance and I've worked a lot with surgeons and leaders and people like um management consultants at places like McKinsey where there is such a high performance culture and such a drive an internal intrinsic drive to do well that actually it's very very fine line between that and very poor mental health very fine and actually I see that um at its its most acute probably very similar to you when when I work with my barristers who are usually at the commercial end so really high value cases high stakes, high pressure, perfectionism is kind of both a requirement and a curse. And and that, as you say, that line between health and ill health, particularly mentally, is is tiny. It's like you walk the tightrope and try not to look down. Yeah. Uh, And so in that sense, it is all one and the same. It's just working different areas, different functions. Mm. And that's one thing I personally love about psychology is we can apply, it applies to people. And it applies to people wherever people are and whatever people are doing. Absolutely. Couldn't um, agree more. So that's quite a privileged position to be in. But today we are specifically going to talk about distress tolerance. Yes. I mean, and there must be, I must find a better phrase than that. It sounds ever so dry, doesn't it? But actually, I do, I do believe the more I've been in this field that learning to tolerate difficult feelings learning to tolerate distress is is if not the fundamental foundation to navigating life and living a healthy life one of only a couple of foundations is you know the difference lots and lots of people go through distress what makes a difference between how they function how they cope whether you survive it how you get through it and what support you need is your ability to understand it and tolerate it which ties in with both emotional regulation and resilience um but it, if you go down to the bare basics, what are we asking people to do uh, when they regulate their emotion? We're asking them to tolerate and manage distress. 
what we're asking them to do when we talk about resilience. It's not about bouncing back. It's about knowing that this might pass. It's going to be tricky. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to cause all sorts of difficult feelings and thoughts are going to cascade. But actually, you've got enough of a toolbox um, to be able to get through it without, you know, an, a mental, an episode of mental ill health, for want of a better phrase. Which is, as you say, it's, it's fundamental to navigating life successfully or feeling fulfilled or actually just not feeling distressed because we can live in um in a in a degree of distress all the time and mm. I think the pandemic's heightened that for a lot of people but my question to you in terms of adolescence do you think that the understanding of what to tolerate has changed in adolescence so do you think for example in when we were adolescents I'm thinking I'm probably older than you but when we were (laughs) adolescents um there wasn't so much talk about mental health that there wasn't the acceptance of mental health but do you believe that where we've got to with mental health and we now label things and we say people have depression and they have anxiety much more readily is that a problem because people then don't build up their own ability to navigate some of those hurdles oh god that's a that's a great question it's a massive question isn't it um so i think a number of things i think that with the pandemic in particular, a lot of the healthy coping strategies that young people in particular used to use were taken away. So, for example, hanging out with friends, uh, going to the park, um, seeing people at school, you know, developing their relationships, separating all of those things that are fundamental to adolescence. None of them were available. Right. So there's just it was really hard for our teenagers to find anything that was a really healthy um, tool a healthy strategy so I think there's that I think you're right totally there's more acceptance there is a bit less stigma isn't there now than when we were were adolescents but I and there's much more labeling and we have we do seem to have got to a really worrying place I find it deeply worrying where where many of the teenagers I work with feel that without a diagnosis their feelings are invalid so this there's this kind of desperation to have a label and a diagnosis and to be as ill frankly, as their mates. But I just genuinely think that is a dire state of affairs and it's really worrying and pretty dangerous, actually. But I think also adolescence in particular is a period of emotional dysregulation because the brain is rewiring. We, you know, prefrontal cortex comes last, probably into the 20s. That's the bit of our logical, rational planning brain that comes last. It's not rewired till then. So we are processing with all the wrong bits throughout adolescence and distress is part and parcel. And I think there isn't an understanding of that. And I think that understanding also needs to go back to parents and teachers and the kind of the toolbox of teaching skills to manage distress. And, a, and a, instead of all this kind of just think positively and life's going to be great. <laughs> I think we really need to change that narrative to, you know what, life sucks sometimes. It's pretty crappy. Um, uh, that's not something you have any control of. What but you've that- got control of is how you respond to it and the tools with which you navigate it. And I think several things there. So the like you said the prefrontal cortex isn't the connections with the emotional brain aren't developed until actually what we now term emerging adulthood into the late 20s sometimes Mm -hmm. and so I think 
when we see teenagers being stroppy or being upset, there's probably less tolerance from us as adults of what is actually a situation that they aren't able to manage or control yet. I think what you're saying about the danger resonates in that if you've got a label, and this is my perspective, and I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I want you to correct me, but there's the risk of spiraling down because you say, well, I'm not okay and I can't cope and things are bad for me. And then the next message is, I'm not okay. Things are bad for me. I, I am broken. And it creates this negative spiral that goes down and people can get worse and worse and worse and worse rather than saying, do you know what? I don't feel okay. I feel horrible actually. And that's okay. It's normal because it's a shitty situation. But the nuance of that is so fine-tuned that how do you go about teaching that to a population of adolescents and as you say of teachers and parents and that to me and and you know I know I go quite hardcore on this but to me I would bin you know some of the the literacy and numeracy and really early primary school teaching and go for this you know I'm like they'll learn maths and English they'll learn to read but what they don't learn unless you really do teach it and teaching it doesn't have to be didactic teaching you know it's experiential it's all sorts of things but the names of different feelings and for example um you know if you take anger loads of people are really scared of anger but anger in itself is not I don't I always say anger in itself is not a thing anger is a response it's a response to a hurt or a wound or feeling misjudged or betrayed or whatever you're responding to you respond with something angry anger is like the most common I think one of the most common emotions and I did a tot up recently actually for a talk I was doing for some training I was doing how many words there are to describe different shades of anger and there were 85 oh my goodness right 85 words that's a lot of words and that just tells us there's a lot of flavors of anger out there but if we only ever have I'm furious or I'm cross I mean we are lost really in both understanding and communicating how we feel Mm. And, and what's interesting there is it's a response isn't it and we don't teach that we don't teach that we all have a very quick emotional response to things and we can't necessarily control that. We can learn to perceive it in different ways, but it's what the intent is of that response. So what we then decide to do with it, that's the bit that matters. So if I'm angry and then I go and hit someone, yeah, that's not great. <laughs> but, but it's not I'm... the anger that's the problem there. It's the hitting. Yeah. The, the anger is always totally valid and absolutely normal. And that's why you have to separate out the behavior and the, res- the, and the, the emotion. And, and this stuff is not easy. I, you know, we sit and chat about it and it probably sounds quite straightforward, but it's really not easy because emotions are so all encompassing. And because, you know, it's probably easy for us to chat about because we've spent a long time in this world understanding it and working with people and seeing it in its different varieties and living it ourselves it's really hard to teach that to kids yeah no, it's fine it's fine to feel angry but how you then deal with that feeling is 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 something we have to have a conversation about and that's why I say you know bin the literacy bin the numeracy I'm sure that's not very you know no one will thank me for that view but anyway <laughs> for the for the early years and teach emotional literacy no I, I I mean I will certainly champion that I think the social and emotional learning is fundamental to then academic success right and it comes down to what we're talking about right at the beginning in terms of the clinical um through to the performance right absolutely (laughs) you're talking about different populations but it's the same thing in any population is that you have to if you want 
academic excellence or you want performance of any sort you want someone to live their and it sounds cheesy but their best life you have to start with those foundations of social and emotional learning right and that understanding and I don't know you probably see it also in, in the people you work with I see it in mind that there is a real desire to get rid of feelings yeah let's just get rid of it let's get rid of it and that, a lot of the positive psychology actually is is the reason it's so toxic is because you're trying to kind of deny and denigrate and get rid actually you don't need to feel anxious you don't need to feel sad you don't need to feel angry well you do you need to feel them all and anxiety in particular which which I find is so prevalent everywhere nowadays I think that really has skyrocketed um recently I mean I think just from a personal perspective so I went through depression as a teenager which was undiagnosed until I went to university and I think in some ways that benefited me now that might sound crazy but I had to learn to put on a brave face get out there and get on with it it was incredibly damaging in many ways and it did damage my you know I now apparently have endogenous depression because it damaged probably part of my developing brain but on the other hand it means that I have got that capability to say, I'm going to get on with things. I feel like shit. I feel desperate, but I'm going to get on with things, which, you know, you shouldn't be forcing yourself into situations if you're not well. But equally, it becomes this spiral of going down and down and down. Because if as a teenager I'd known I had depression, I may have not gone to school. And then if I'd not gone to school, I wouldn't have had the social support of my friends. I wouldn't have developed my social brain as a teenager. I wouldn't have got my A-levels. I wouldn't have progressed through life. Then I would that would affect my self-esteem and my self-worth. So I mean, absolutely. But I would hope also that, <clears throat> excuse me, that that you'd have had a good old bit of both hands. You know, had you been diagnosed, you'd have been given some extra support and you'd have gone to school and had the social social support and done all of those things but with a little bit of extra help and treatment so that it didn't linger for quite as long. I mean, that's the ideal, isn't it? That you get both. And I think that what worries me is the where things are now. And I don't know what you're seeing uh, is, is there is less tolerance for distress. If we come back to what we're talking about, there's, there's less tolerance for saying, and I'm not, I, I'm not advocating hiding or not diagnosing or anything like that. And I will not, I, it was a dark and lonely time. <laughs> But I worry that we are not equipping our adolescents with enough tolerance for dealing with the distress that they're experiencing. I would agree with that completely. You know, that's my whole, that's what I you do all day long. That's what I really profoundly believe. And it's not just our adolescents. There are loads of, you know, younger children and adults in this world who don't have those skill sets who don't have that toolbox. You know, they're alert and you, you can't, it's like, it's like saying, I'm going to, I'm going to completely redo my house. But I've only got one paintbrush, a Phillips screwdriver and two nails and a hammer. You just can't redo a house. You need a really full toolbox with all sorts of different bits, all sorts of different tools with which you can mend that. Or you've got a drill, you've got a masonry drill and you've got a woodwork drill and you've got all sorts of different size screwdrivers. and You've got hammers and you've got spanners and you've got you've got the whole works. And that's for me, that's the kind of the equivalent to what we need to be, you know, 
equipping ourselves with or equipping our kids or whoever it is that's what we want to build is the toolbox so that when life happens because life invariably happens right when life happens you can go okay let me try that one no that didn't work very well let me reach in for that one yeah that's not so bad how about yeah that one's also doing quite well and there's there's choice and variety if we only have one tool we are going to be lost even if even if we understand we need that tool if all we've got is is social support Look, don't get me wrong. I think social support is fundamental, but you also need something inner so that when you aren't with your friends, you've got a resourcefulness internally as well as externally. So you need lots of different things. And when it comes to adolescents, particularly, you know, when when it's eating disorders, I don't, I don't want to go down the route of eating disorders per se, but with that extreme trauma, how do you teach what are those internal skills you're teaching them what are those things that you're saying let's build up your toolbox for your internal mechanisms what what type of thing would that be so kind of I always start with understanding understanding why you might feel as you do understanding why you might respond as you do then looking at all sorts of different ways of how could you see this differently if you put yourself in somebody else's shoes theory of mind Theory of mind develops in childhood, but a lot of people seem to have quite undeveloped theory of mind, which is understanding the other person's point of view. So, you know, that those exercises, if you put yourself in their shoes, what might they be feeling? How might they hear that? You know, and then trying to build up internal validation. There are two forms of valida- validation. External is when other people tell you that you're great or you look lovely or that you've done that really well and you get celebration or praise externally. And look, we all need some of that. It's lovely to have some external validation and it's really important. But if we only have the external, then when that external drops away for whatever reason, even for you know a day, you feel completely lost. So you have to build up the resourcefulness internally to know, I'm okay, I'm good enough, or I'm worthy enough, or I'm enough just like this. And actually, I know that piece of work I did, or I know that conversation I had, that was okay. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't hurting anyone, or I wasn't doing anything wrong. That was okay. If something falls out, you know, if there's something that goes awry because of this, I can have a look at it and understand it. But actually, it's probably not all about me. Um, So there's that. And then there's something just flicked into my head as I was saying it and flicked straight out again. Um, You know, a lot of a lot of people do believe it's all about them. You know, that everything, that they are responsible for everything, that they're the cause of everything, that everything, every communication means that they're inadequate or they're not okay. And so trying to change that is quite, you know, it's quite a lengthy process often to build up that self-belief of, you know what, I'm all right. Um, it may or may not resonate, but but my father died a year ago. Oh, and sorry. I'm very, thank you. I'm very, I'm, I re- tend to think I'm pretty good at distress tolerance. I think, you know, I hope so, given how much I talk about it. <laughs> but I remember people saying, well, how are you doing? And I'd say, yeah, you know what, I'm fine. And they go, you're fine. I'd go, really, I am actually fine. Um, and it tended to end up in a conversation going, look, yes, I, I, I've, I've had a bereavement and, and I feel all sorts of different things, but fundamentally I know I can cope and I know that I've got all sorts of fabulous people in my life and that, you know, there'll be ups and there'll be downs and I end up going through this whole explanation really frequently. I was really struck by it of having to explain what fine in my world meant and what fine in my world meant, I realised, was, you know, all sorts of different bits, but fundamentally that kind of complete self belief that whatever happened and however it played out I would cope and I was coping and I had the resources and I was going to be okay 
And it was a really curious process to go through and to observe the kind of interactions I had about, do you know what, I'm all right, and this is what all right to me means, which was an explanation usually of I'm, I'm going to be all right, you know, it's bumpy, that's okay, it's normal. And that was distress tolerance. And that's distress tolerance. Um, and I've spoken a couple of times on this podcast to uh, Russ Harris, who does a lot on acceptance. Act. I love a good bit of act. Yeah. It's my absolute go-to. Act and EMDR, they are my favourite models. I love act. Fantastic. So acceptance and commitment therapy. And he says, you know, anxiety is a normal human condition. Right. Right. It's like, it's like, you know, we would be dead without it. We would be much worse off without anxiety because it protects us. It's a survival mechanism. It's normal. We have to have it. But it's then our perception of it and what we mm. do with it that can mm-hmm. make it um, really dysfunctional for us or crippling. or um, And those are things we're not taught. We're not taught what you've just described, which is riding it out. It's going with the ups, going with the downs and letting them pass. And knowing you'll be okay. I mean, I think that is really fundamental because a lot of people feel that they can't cope and they won't cope. And I think for me, when you say what are those internal resources, for me, an absolute, I mean, I'm sure there are some things in life that would really challenge my coping. But generally, I I just go, that's hard, I just cope. You know, I've got skills, I've got people, I've got toolbox, I get this stuff, I'll cope. Might be bumpy. That doesn't mean I won't cope. And that inherent belief of I will cope, I think, is lacking in huge numbers. And I think there's also the belief or the feeling that if I feel like this now, this is this is life. And it's very difficult to not see it like that when you haven't experienced, been taught, understand how things play out. Because to you in that moment, if you're very, very, very distressed, this is what life is. It's not even what life is going to be in 10 minutes or an hour. You only believe this is what life is. And that's that belief again, isn't it? But I think unless we're providing people with the tools, as you say, but also the knowledge, the knowledge of this is how things work in, in, a, in a bigger network of who you are and the world around you, then and it's piecing it all together. And I think one of the dangers I see with social media is a lot of tools are thrown out there, which is fabulous to be sharing when they're proper evidence-based tools, but someone doesn't know how they relate to them or how they relate to their experience of the world or how that fits together with the overall picture of them, their life and the context that they exist in. Absolutely. And it's things, you know, even as, as you know, it's not straightforward, really, because I think it's one of the big ones. But, you know, I, I will often say, you know, thoughts and feelings, they're like clouds. Sometimes they're really dark, full of rain, full of pain, really ominous and thundery. Sometimes they're light and fluffy and happy and joyful and full of, you know, whatever it may be. But whichever they are, they're going to blow in and then they're going to blow out. How long they last, we don't always know, but they never stay forever. It is exactly like the clouds and the weather. It changes. Um, but even that takes you know, it tends to be a massive shift for some people to kind of go, really? It's a bit of a leap of faith. Of, I don't really believe you. Are you sure? I'm like, I really am sure. <laughs> you know, they really are. And I think clouds is nice because you do get these very heavy, thundery storm clouds, which can be like all of those distressing feelings. I, th- yeah. I mean, that's, I've heard the cloud analogy, but not described like that. I really love that. I think that's brilliant because it, 
particularly living in the UK, I know not, <laughs> not all of our listeners. I know that some of our listeners are in sunny California and Australia and South Africa, in places that you may not appreciate. Have lighter clouds more often. <laughs> we but have just, quite a lot of dark. Yeah, just visit the UK and um, you'll all get a flavour of what we're talking about. I think as a, a you know whether someone lives in the UK or not, the analogy is really helpful because it you know the, we can have bad weather for a week, we can have pouring right. rain for a week in the middle of summer, but but then and we think oh god, is this what summer's going to be like? I have to say that was my thought this morning when I popped out and it was cold. It's very cold. At the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's summer. What's going on? It's dark and grey and miserable. But that's the point, isn't it? And so, you know, even just understanding that means that people might then go, well, do you know what? If, if Anna's right, then let me just sit with it for a little bit longer. You know, there are so many fabulous analogies out there. Um, I don't know about you, but I spend my day talking in analogies. Um, you know. I, I don't think I have as many powerful as that. To be honest, but maybe I need to listen in to you and and voice them. I always <laughs> attribute them to whoever I get them from. Um, so you, Russ Harris, probably I don't know if he talks about it, but the anxiety is like a kind of a car alarm or a smoke alarm. You know, you have it. This, if you go with the smoke, I tried to set my own car alarm off last time when I tried to make. A oh, I saw that video. <laughs> I failed completely, but it was for this analogy. Uh, you know, you have you have a smoke alarm. I'll go with the smoke alarm because I so failed to set off the car alarm. You have a smoke alarm um, so that you know, should there be a fire in your house, you'll be woken up and you'll be safe and you'll be able to escape. But sometimes a smoke alarm goes off when you burn the toast, right? And that's exactly the same with our kind of our, our with anxiety. It's there to keep us safe and it's a survival mechanism and we really need it. But sometimes it misfires and it goes off either when an acorn drops on the car instead of when someone's trying to break into it or when we burn the toast a little bit. And and so you don't always have to take each moment of anxiety as though your life is in danger. You have to take a pause and say, hang on a minute, what was that about? How do I understand that? What do I need to do with that? And I think that one of the hardest things to do is to pause and to think. So I, I think, I mean, you know, I think myself when I'm advising people what to do, so you need to do this, you need to do that. And actually having the discipline to stop, think and have a metacognitive view of it. So be able to step away from it is really hard. Um, and that has to be built as a habit and a process and a way of operating to, it, to enable that perspective taking and that way of saying, it, is this good or is this bad? Or how am I feeling? And it doesn't mean exactly that. And it doesn't mean you won't feel overwhelmed sometimes. Hmm. You know, it just it doesn't mean those feelings will come. The other thing about, you know, that just crossed my mind when you were saying that with distress tolerance and the reason that I think it's so important is because, if, if we don't have it, then we usually engage in the really unhelpful coping strategies like starvation or binging or using alcohol or using drugs or using any of those behaviours that we know cause more trouble than they fix. They work in the really short term. You know, if you don't eat, you'll get your starvation high, you'll numb your feelings, it'll all change. But my gosh, in the long term, you're going to have a hideous journey. Um, likewise, if you get drunk in the moment, you'll probably feel better or you might feel better or you might forget what's going on but that will wear off quite fast and the problems it will causes last much longer and are much greater than had you originally ridden the wave however you'd have ridden it of what was distressing mm. uh, and the, the wave I love the wave analogy and yes <laughs> to use the wave analogy and urge surfing urge surfing and I, I love it, urge surfing I call it emotion surfing in my first book 
because I think you can surf all sorts of emotions. I used to do a lot of surfing and, you know, it's frustrating trying to catch the wave. You get dumped by the wave. But actually, when you do ride that wave, the, the wave fizzles out whether you ride it or not, basically. So if you would sit, in, you don't have to be a surfer. You can sit on the beach and watch waves and a massive, great big wave will come and it will rock any boats that are anchored in the harbour, little boats. But it, it comes, it breaks and the water gets calm again. But if if you tried to fight that wave, if you stood there <laughs> see, you know, it's like when you, you, you're being buffeted about by waves. If you stand and try and face into a strong wave, you get hit hard and it hurts. And you're most likely going to get knocked off your feet as well. But if you jump up when that wave comes or if you, you let your body, your body surf it or you just go in with it, it's it can be fun at, at the best but at the worst you don't get that shock of pain that you will feel if you stand there and keep trying to stand up against those waves and you'll get tired and you'll you, you'll get worn out and all those sorts of things happen and you can never stop the wave you can never stop the wave the wave is going to happen isn't it irrespective and i think uh, there's a huge number of children at my daughter's school and friends who have adolescent children who are self-harming at the moment and it's another mechanism for coping with that pain you can understand it it's a release it's a focus on something else it's an outlet but what if you if so parents listening who have adolescent children doing something like that what advice would you give them to try and help their child to cope in other ways I mean, it's not a simple, quick answer, I realise that. But. I think the first thing is, as you said at the beginning, understanding it is a coping mechanism because there's often a misperception that, and I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway, that it's attention seeking yeah. or it's, you know, just crying out for help. Well, one, if your child is crying out for help, give them some help. Um, two, if they're seeking attention, there's probably a feeling that they don't have enough inside of them. So give them a bit of attention. But three, actually, it's a coping strategy. It's a numbing. It's a numbing technique. And I always say to parents, this is a numbing technique. In the moment of harming themselves, they will uh, feel relief. They won't feel the emotional pain because the physical pain will take over. Plus, there's an endorphin rush, which will come through the body, which gives a surge of kind of energy and uplift and uh, sometimes even happiness, you know, as endorphins do. And then it'll wear off and they'll be left with the emotional pain and now the physical pain. And to an extent, I think shame as well. For some, for for some or for many, shame, which is, as we know, I think the most tricky of all emotions, actually, is shame. So trying to work with your child and say, um, maintain a stance of curiosity. I'm curious, how does this help you? What could we do instead? What else could we, you know, if you are feeling distressed, could you come and find me and we'll sit together, we'll watch something on telly or we'll, we'll hang out together or we'll go for a walk in that moment where you'd otherwise harm. So that instead, what the worst thing to do really is to tell them off because one, it won't stop them. And two, they'll just feel worse about themselves. They'll feel shameful. They'll feel angry. They'll you'll, the, the emotional distress will increase. So trying to say, how do I come alongside you? How do I help you out with this in a way that that actually in the long term is going to be better? Or not even the long term, in the in the in the the short to medium term. In the immediate, immediate moment, you might get more of a release from the harm. But once that immediate moment's passed, you'll get much more relief 
from going for a walk with me, from phoning your friends, from watching some comedy on TV that makes you laugh. You know, there are all sorts of things. So as parents, I always say, try and come alongside your young person rather than being, rather than showing them that you are overwhelmed by anxiety or distress. Because when they see that, it creates loads of conflict in them. Do they want you to know? Do they not want you to know? They need to make it better for you. They need to make it better for themselves. How do they deal with that? It's very complicated. So you can show them you're worried. You can say, oh, I'm really worried about this. I don't, you know, and I'm sad for you but how do we do this together how do we you know almost ride those waves together how can I ride them alongside you because the other thing is nobody wants to be I really believe you may disagree I don't know I just tend to think nobody wants to be fixed nobody wants to be have a communication given to them that they need fixing is what no, I'm definitely say. not you know that there's something wrong and they need fixing I think maybe many people want a quick fix but actually that communication of you know something wrong you need to be fixed nobody really wants to hear it's horrible no. communication no, and also I think the distress that comes with that from parents of not knowing how to fix, but but that suggests that there needs to be a fix, there needs right. to be something fixed. And, and that's huge for parents to navigate as well as, as kids. Um, and teachers, I think teachers, for, from what I've heard, and pastoral care um, leads, they're really struggling as well because there is this there's a huge uptick, isn't there, in terms of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, uh, self-harm, and they don't know what to do. And they're trying their best, but they don't know if they're doing the right thing or not. Absolutely. And, and you know, most of us don't know if we're doing the right thing because what helps one person may not help another person. That's the point of, again, social media is an amazing place in some ways that there are tools and techniques out there, but the beauty of individualized care is that you really tailor it for somebody for that particular person and, and it's not the job I really feel it's not the job of teachers they're amazing and they really look after their students but it's it's that's not their training that's not their job you know I wouldn't go into a classroom and teach it would I'd be terrible you know but we are expecting our teachers to try and do some of what we do and and they can't that said in PSHE I think there is now a bit more about feelings and everyone kind of goes, rolls their eyes, don't they? Oh, God. <laughs> and I get that. I really get that. But actually, that's the way that it can come into school and teachers keeping an eye out. But then it's about the resourcing, isn't it? Of which there just isn't enough. There aren't enough mm. resources. And to an extent, I think that can create another level of desperation if whether it's a teacher or someone else at school, it has been providing support but there are so many children needing that support that they the one person for example say her name is amy who'd been to see mrs brown and mrs brown had sat with her and talked to her and that was great but then the next time amy goes to try and find mrs brown mrs brown is busy and so she mrs brown helped her but now she can't get hold of mrs brown does that mean mrs brown doesn't care about her does it mean you know, if she hasn't got her own internal resources, that can become another point of desperation? Because whilst our parents might be busy, they might have a work call, we know hopefully in functional families, the parent will be there ultimately at the end of the day to say goodnight, to do those things. But when you have someone within the school system whose job it isn't necessarily, or it is, but they don't have an allotted time, I, I just worry that there's another level of desperation of not being able to cope that's created in that situation. There is, there is now, you know, the number of emails I get, can you help my child, can you help me, I don't know what to do, is, is like I've never seen in my career before. 
I can't, CAMS have got a two year waiting list. You know, I can't get into CAMS. Um, no one has got space. And, and sadly, those are the realities, but the desperation out there is, is unbelievable. It's awful, actually. Awful. It really is. Um, I'm conscious we've got five minutes there and it's not a very happy note to finish on. Um, so if we go back to distress tolerance, what would you say are the most simple starting points? So if we talk about adults now, for adults to improve their distress tolerance? Know that your life is going to have ups and downs. You cannot control what happens. Know that you have to control how you deal with it. That's all really that's in, within our gift. We can't control other people. We can't control events. So the work needs to be done on how we respond, how you respond. Um, the analogies like of, of clouds, they're really helpful and of surfing. Those two analogies I really think are the big ones, you know, okay, how do I surf this wave? What do I need in my kind of, my, my, my box to help me surf a wave, to lean into it, to ride into it and things like, um, you know, I always talk about watching comedy because comedy is really uplifting and laughter creates a chemical change in our brain and in our body, which makes us feel better. So laughter is really important. But, you know, things like putting in a toolbox, calling a friend, putting social events in, doing the opposite. I say to my people all the time, just do the opposite. If you want to withdraw, do the opposite and talk to someone. If you want to run away, do the opposite and face the fear. Get lots of support around you, but face the fear. Always do the opposite. If you want to starve, eat. If you want to harm yourself, don't. Um, do the opposite. Because when you go with what your emotional brain is telling you to do, it can lead you down a path that makes things worse. So leaning into emotions is when you go, okay, I'm going to feel this. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to, if I need to cry or I need to shout or any, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to allow that to happen. And then a bit like that wave, however fierce it is, it ultimately fizzles out. So leaning in is really important and learning to do that and putting lots of people around you. It doesn't mean you have to be a major optimist, a major extrovert. You don't have to go clubbing or partying all the time, but people who can, you know, be in your life for you is really important that you can say, I'm just having a bit of a rubbish day and they're on the end of text or phone or they'll pop around with a cuppa. Um, and I, I love the do the opposite piece, actually. It's something that I hadn't thought of either in that way and I think that's the useful reminder to people is to do the opposite because we all know we want to socially withdraw when we're feeling blue and actually facing into some of those things that our emotional brain is telling us is immensely helpful and what you were saying there one of the things I did during the pandemic with frontliners was I'd say to them right we're about to hit it was after the first wave um I said I want you to make a plan a list who will you call when you feel like this? What will you eat? Um, what are you going to have in the fr what, what are you going to wear? And they sort of look at me like these ICU doctors be like, what are you on about? It's like, you, you, I was like, just do it, just do it. And then when they hit the second uh, wave and they were so overwhelmed, you can't think about who you need to phone. You can't think about what you need to eat. And you've got that little plan there. And you're like, oh, Oh, okay. This exactly. makes sense. Yes. Um, but the things I think the things we think are so oh, of course I wouldn't do that. Of course I'll know who to phone. Of course I'll know what to eat. But when we're actually in that moment of distress, our brain doesn't think clearly, does it? Well, it can't because it's overwhelmed with too much emotion or too much input or too much information. And it can't, 
you know, that's because it's all going in through the amygdala, the emotional part of the brain. It's not going through the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational part. That bit is not working so well. So and that's what happens with the overwhelm. And planning like that is just brilliant. And actually, as you you know, putting that into your toolbox is another brilliant skill. The lovely um, skill. And, I, and I'm all for toolboxes. And I think the toolbox will, the tools you need will change depending on where you're at in life and what your context is and what you're experiencing. But it's absolutely invaluable, whether you've started before or you've never done this before, to start building up that toolbox. And there's um, there's no age that's too young to start and no age that's too late. Yeah, right? I, think that, I think that's no age too late. It's an important one as well. I, I really important. Um, and do you know what? It's, it's, it's hard being human but it's also incredibly exciting if we take it as something that we can grow and learn to feel more fulfilled with and be curious about ourselves and how we respond and how we can respond better and how mm -hmm. to help other people. It's actually the magic of life. Couldn't agree more. And curiosity, I mean, I, I love the kind of both the stance and the phrase curiosity because it's so non-judgmental. And it is so. Oh, I was just going to pull out a book on curiosity. Oh, go on, go on. No, 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 no. It's actually not the one I was thinking. I've got a few books on this one's it by Ian Leslie. So anyone listening, curious by Ian Leslie. But there's also um, uh, actually a guest I had on a couple of uh, episodes ago, Dr. T Todd Cashdan, who's a Georgetown professor of psychology at Georgetown University, and he's written a book called Curious as well. And I think using curiosity in life and to ourselves as well, it's that light, playful, comes back to your point, that playful um, ability to explore without holding too tightly onto things, which is where you don't wave, you don't ride the wave, you get pushed over by it. Yeah. But sorry, I interrupted you. you no, that's saying, fine. I'm cute. No, I'm just going to blow. I don't know why I was, it's fine. I love curiosity. I think I it's, curiosity. it's immense. It's and I, I say to my, I say to everyone I work with, just be curious. Be curious about what your child's going through. Be curious about what your friend's going through. Don't assume you know the answer. And even if you do know the answer, still be curious because you'll find you'll you'll open up avenues of communication and um, and moments of compassion and connection that that you wouldn't have found without curiosity. Never assume. Absolutely. Just be curious. Absolutely. And and. Uh, it, and you, like you say, you will probably be surprised because if you go in there and you hold your judgment of I know the answer, you may get far more richness. Well, you will get far more richness and flavour to what that answer was. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I could continue talking to you all day. I started late, so apologies to everyone. This is going to be a little bit shorter than it should be. Um, I'm hoping I might be able to speak to Anna again on the Lovely. podcast. And we're going to, if we do, we were going to talk about stage right. yeah performance. which I yeah. performance which I think is major because whilst you may think that's just the West End actors and it's not it's um all of us in some shape or form well I I've recently been you know uh increasingly struck by good old Shakespeare's all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players we have our entrances and our exits and one man in his time plays many parts and actually I've been thinking that is life that is life. I know it's seven ages of man. And so, of course, it is life. But when people are anxious, it is about a moment of performance. And it doesn't matter whether that performance is in a social situation in a party. 
whether that performance is on the West End stage or whether it's a board presentation or a test. Everything we seem to be anxious about, and I'm sure there's going to be a caveat and it's not going to be everything, so I shouldn't say everything, but you know, <laughs> much, much of what we're anxious about is some kind of putting ourselves out there and putting ourselves out as being open to a judgment or a response, which is a performance. Yeah, totally. Oh, I'm really excited. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that I can borrow an hour more of your time for, for people to listen into that because I think that sounds really great. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I think people will also have found that immensely helpful, um, which is, I guess, what we do as psychologists is try and help. Um, we hope we do anyway. <laughs> we hope we do. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love that you actually practice uh, what you preach, which I would say I'm not so good at myself. Oh, I promise you, I fall far short <laughs> just as often as I manage to do it, if not more. Promise. Uh, <laughs> I think yeah, I think you're a better role model a bit than I am. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank Anna. you so much for having me. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about me and my work, go to fionamurden.com or my social media handle is also fionamurden. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe, review and tell your friends. It would be a massive help. But for now, goodbye and I hope you have a great week.